Let me, uh, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, just a few minutes ago, we sang uh, together that we are the people of your care. And so uh, we ask in the next few minutes as we uh, read your word and think about it and talk about it uh, together, that we would experience that to be true, that you, you would care for us, um, your sheep. Father, that you would tend to us um, that you would do all of the things uh, that you need to do to your sheep to heal some, to call some back, to tell some exactly where they should be. Father, we ask too that to the extent that we don't feel like that's who we are and, and maybe we don't uh, feel ready to hear from you, would you make us ready by your spirit? And we ask this in, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, good morning, everybody. It is uh, good to be back with you after uh, a few weeks away. Thank you very much uh, for allowing me to do that. It was, it was good to rest uh, and to read a little and to be able to worship at other churches around the city. Um, but as, uh, as Dorothy wistfully said before leaving Oz, there is no place like home. So I'm glad to be back here with all of you. Uh, So for the rest of the summer, right up through Labor Day, uh, we're going to read Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church together. Uh, Paul uh, founded that church. He planted that church. uh, But his time with them was really short for reasons that we're going to talk about later. Um, And and so because he didn't get to spend a lot of time with them, because they were so fresh in the faith, naturally he wondered how they were getting along after he left. So he sent a guy named Timothy to find out, and when Timothy came back, the report was really good. And so the letter of 1 Thessalonians is really just a letter of relief and of, and of joy uh, and, and thanks at that news. And it's woven with teaching on stuff that Christians everywhere always wonder about, things like suffering and work and sex and death and how and when Jesus will return to make everything right again. So that's what we're going to read together, and I'm going to read the first chapter of it for us this morning. So I'll read uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. 
So uh, one morning last week, I woke up out of a, uh, a really deep sleep, and I woke up in this total fog. Uh, I mean, I knew uh, where I was, and I knew who I was and all that, but I did not know uh, what day it was. Um, and so those were the first words out of my mouth to Allison, what day is this? <laughs> and she answered, and uh, things started to click into place. Now, I don't know uh, about you, but I love it when that happens. <laughs> and I love it because it means, uh, I think, that I have slept really, really well. No uh, weird dreams that woke me up or that, that agitated me while I was asleep. No uh, tossing and turning. No dog jumping up into the bed trying to get me to pet him or feed him. No waking up before uh, the sun rises and staring at the ceiling and thinking about things that I have no power at all to change, right? All of that stuff is normal for me. That's all usual for me. And so waking up confused because I had slept so deeply was a welcome change. And so while my question to Allison was necessary, I mean, I definitely needed to know what day it was, uh, it was just as much an expression of wonder. <laughs> like, did that really just happen? <laughs> and I thought about that because these, uh, these first 10 verses of Paul's letter to that little church are kind of like that. This opening is Paul telling his friends, yes, that really happened. That really happened. It was real. You believed. You started following Jesus. Things Change. You saw stuff happening all around you that you never dreamed you would see. That really happened. Lives really changed. You really changed. God really loves you. And he is working new life in you. All of that happened, and it's still happening. And uh, that's a pretty great encouragement to this young church, just learning how to walk in the faith, just getting their legs of faith under them, and probably wondering about just about everything in their new life as Christian people. And I think it's a pretty great encouragement for you and me too. It is really uh, a primer on what it means to be a Christian and an encouragement to keep walking in the way that we started. And I don't know, uh, I don't mind telling you that I need that kind of sustaining food every day. And if you are a Christian, then you do too. So this is what Paul tells his friends in verse 2. This is how he begins. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers. Now this, this is how Paul starts almost all of his letters. This is usual for him by telling uh, whatever church or whatever person it is that he is writing to a bunch of things that he thanks God for about them. And uh, there is no doubt uh, a convention to it. Paul is, if you will, following uh, a liturgy of ancient letter writing. But like all of the best liturgies that form us, that, that shape us, there is a very deep meaning in this convention for Paul. I've mentioned this before, uh, but I think that it's probably worth mentioning again and hearing again. I mean, line for line... Um, there is no writer in the Greek language, uh, Christian or pagan, who mentions thanksgiving more than Paul does. Nobody. 
It is deeply woven into all of his letters. And I does, he does that, I think, because he believes that thanksgiving is a fundamentally necessary posture of every human being before God. It is a critical posture for human beings before God. So, for example, at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Roman church, um, he gives this big picture diagnosis of everything that is wrong in the world. <laughs> okay, it's like this from a thousand miles up. It's like God points down and Paul says, look, here it is. This is the thing that is wrong with the world. And I'm telling you, it's not the language you would expect Here's what he says, although they knew God, people knew God, they didn't honor him and they didn't give thanks to him. That's what's wrong with the world. We were made to enjoy God, we were made to enjoy all that he's given us and we were made to do that by living lives of thankfulness and it literally breaks the world when we don't. And so the opposite is true, too. When we do give thanks to God, something that is broken, something that is twisted at the heart of the universe begins to be made right. When we give thanks to God, something of our humanness is restored in us. Okay, so let me, let me say that I, I know how prayer normally goes because I hear myself when I pray. And it's mostly made up of me asking God for things. And, you know, that's good. We're supposed to ask God for things. He told us to ask him for things. But I think we would do well to fold in at least as much thanksgiving in our prayer as we do asking God for stuff. Just try that this week as you pray. Try to turn up the mix on thankfulness so it's at least half of the time that you're also asking God for things. Church, this is why every week uh, before we come to this table, we say something called the great thanksgiving and we say it together. And we come to this meal that is sometimes called the Eucharist, which means I give thanks. This is why every week when we come together, we sing songs of praise for God and for who he is and what he's done. Because these are liturgies that we believe shape us and that hopefully form our lives apart during the week. We believe the Holy Spirit uses these things to make us into people who grow us in our awareness and grow us in our practice of thankfulness. And when we do that, that plays a part in restoring us and restoring this messed up world to what it was supposed to be in the first place. So, Paul gives thanks. And, you know, it's also a pretty great way for him to be able to tell that little church, this is what I think is so good about you guys. This, this is what I love about you guys, while at the same time also making it clear that God is the one who does all of the good things in people like us. He's not saying, I praise you for your great behavior. He's saying, I praise God because he has done these things for you. And so he gives them th- God thanks. And he gives God thanks for three things right at the top, for their work of faith, for their labor of love, and for the steadfastness of their hope in Jesus. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and the steadfastness of their hope in Jesus. That that triad of faith and love and hope, it's everywhere in Paul's letters, but of course the emphasis here 
is on what those gifts from God have created. And I want you to hear them as best you can. Work, labor, steadfastness. That's what God has worked in them. Work, labor, and steadfastness. John Calvin uh, called this verse, verse 3, a brief definition of true Christianity. And I'm telling you, it's hard to disagree with him. And he goes on to characterize, what is this picture? What does this triad actually look like? What is this picture of, of true Christianity? And this is what he says about it. Faith that is living and faith that is full so that it spares no labor when assistance is to be given to one's neighbors. Okay, faith that is living, faith that is full, so that it spares no labor when assistance is to be given to one's neighbors. And so, you know what Paul is saying? Paul's saying, look, when Timothy came back and he told me how you guys were doing, he let the cat out of the bag. This is really happening. This is really happening. You are changing into a people who look like Jesus, people who work, people who labor tirelessly and give out of what you have for the good of the other. And the energy behind it, the fuel that speeds that work along is the steadfast hope that you have in Jesus. Now, there is a bunch of stuff to say about this, but let me just say two things about it. First, uh, I think we should take a page out of Calvin's book and use this and see this as a picture of what a Christian looks like. We are busy at it. We work in faith and we labor in love. We are busy at it. I mean, if you or I, if we conceive of our faith primarily as a, a, a set of things that we have to believe, you know? Like if we conceive of our faith as this set of things, like a checklist of uh, proper thoughts or correct moralities floating in a cloud somewhere that that we're supposed to name check on social media or in our conversations or in some sermon we write, if we think primarily of faith in those terms, then we have really, 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 really missed the point. Of course we're supposed to believe things about Jesus, and of course we're supposed to believe things about the true story of the world and our place in that story. And we should do the best that we can to believe correctly about those things, the right things. But ever and always, church, ever and always, the actual evidence of the things that we really believe, it shows up in what we do. It shows up in our lives, in tears, in sweat, in blood, in flesh and blood on the streets. That's how we know what we really believe, the stuff that we do, because that's how humans were made to tick. We move towards the things that we desire. We move towards the things that we love. And so I think this is a great chance for you and for me to like take a snapshot of the last week of our lives and then look at that snapshot and ask, 
what did what I really do say about what I really believe? I'm just looking at the stuff I did and I want to know, does it show any evidence of the things that I believe? I know it's not easy to ask that question and sometimes it's not really pleasant, but if we follow Jesus, <laughs> we will do it anyway. <laughs> and this leads right into the second thing uh, that I'd like to say about this, which is just to say again that the fuel that we burn, the fuel that burns to speed our work of faith, to speed our labor of love, is our steadfast hope in Jesus, not our steadfast hope in ourselves. Okay, not our steadfast hope in our ability to change the world, not our steadfast hope in our own ability to change ourselves, not in steadfast hope in our savvy, not in our smarts, not in our creativity, not in our capacity. As fine and as abundant and substantial as those things might be, we do not hope in them. The thing that fuels our work the thing that speeds our labor of love along is always and only, church, the steadfast hope that we have in Jesus. That's it. Who he is, who, what he has done for us, the gifts and the graces that Jesus has given to us, the forgiveness that he's won for us, that you and I need every single day, the new life that he has made us to be able to walk in because of his resurrection, the family, this family, <laughs> that he's placed us in, that allows us to call each other sister and brother and shockingly the God of all things. We get to call him Father. There is no other fuel, no other fuel that works but steadfast hope in Jesus and the gifts and the graces that he gives to us as people. And we know, we know this is true. Existentially, we know this is true because we know where all the other fuels we try to burn take us. We know where we end up, to burnout, to anger, to resentment, sometimes even to despair, to this huge whopping dose of foul-smelling self-righteousness at all the other people around me who just can't seem to get it together, who just can't do as much as they should be doing. So thank God. Thank God that we have Jesus who takes people like us away from the wildly burdensome need for self-justification. Thank you, thank you that we have Jesus who kindly and most often gently shows us how dumb self-righteousness really is and who has taken away every last ground for it at his cross. Thank you, thank you God that we have Jesus in whom we can rest from the impossible burden of saving the world ourselves. Our steadfast hope is only in him, and that's fine, because he is the savior of the world. <laughs> and precisely, church, and, and, and precisely, and because that is true, that he is the savior, that means we can be busy in our work of faith, we can be busy in our labor of love underneath him and alongside him 
by means of his power working in us, his grace working in us. And that's what it looks like to be a Christian. And Paul's heard, he's heard that that's going on with the church in Thessalonica, so he thanked God for it. And you know, it's beautiful because this thanks allows them to reflect, you know, these young Christians. And I think maybe he's right. (laughs) I guess he is. We really are changing. We're changing because of this hope that we have. And in verses 4 and 5, Paul talks about how the good news came to them not only in word, um, not only in what he preached to them, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I think, you know, what he's talking about there is all the stuff that happened among that church when it was beginning to form that could have had nothing to do while he was up, blah, blah, preaching to them. Nothing to do with any of that. You know, miracles maybe that happened. Changed lives for sure. It was legitimate. They knew it. They knew it. And it was real. And then in the back half of verse 5, he says, you know, you know, <laughs> you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and imitators of the Lord. And I know that some of us could hear that and maybe think, that, wow, that sounds a little self-aggrandizing, but it isn't. Because imitation was a vital dimension of civic ethics in antiquity. It was expected of teachers that they would be moral exemplars. Not everybody, very few people could read. Fewer had access to books, and so they learned by listening and by watching. Which is not very different from how we learn either. And Paul doesn't say exactly how they imitated him or, more importantly, how they uh, imitated Jesus, but he does hint at it when he says, you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Affliction and joy. Affliction and joy. So here's the truth. The truth is that Paul uh, was just about run out of Thessalonica after he founded the church there. We're going to talk about that more in the coming weeks, but if you want to read about it, you can this afternoon. You can read the whole story in Acts 17. And the bottom line was that Paul and the rest of those who were there with him at the founding of the church, they were uh, accused of acting against the empire. And the accusation was they are acting against the empire because they are saying that there is another king called Jesus. And of course, it was an act of sedition to suggest that there was a true Lord over Caesar. So just as a side note, I will say that the people who said that they were saying that were not wrong. (laughs) They were not wrong about the implications of it either. So Paul gets run out of town, and it's clear that the same opposition that made Paul have to cut and run from that city, that same opposition is making life really, really, really hard for those young Christians in that city. I mean, uh, Paul got to leave, you know. They sent him with blessing, but they had to stay because that was their home. And now there is much affliction. Paul's heard there's much affliction, but there is also joy. 
affliction, and joy. That is a combination of realities that you see a lot in the New Testament. Paul, um, for his part in particular, never gets tired of pointing it out that trouble and suffering can somehow be alloyed with deep abiding joy. And this happens, by the way, um, when a people's steadfast hope is in Jesus. Because one of the gifts and one of the graces that Jesus gives to us is the ability to experience joy even in the middle of suffering. I think maybe that's what Paul was saying when he talked about imitating him and then imitating Jesus, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And I want you to know, you know, that from the very beginning of the church's life, this ability, this ability to hold together suffering and joy, from the very beginning it has been one of the most eloquent witnesses to the truth of what we believe. And that's what Paul says. People have heard about this. People know about you guys. They know about this crazy thing that's going on in Thessalonica. In verse 8, as he puts it, the word of the Lord sounded forth from them. It's echoed across the valleys and over the mountains of Greece. Their faith in God has gone forth everywhere in the province. Paul says, I don't ever need to say anything about you guys because everybody knows about you guys and they tell me about you. This really happened Paul is saying, there's no denying it, and you are changed people. People tell me all the time that these are the ones who turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And I know that that sounds like a really churchy thing to say, (laughs) right? Because of course they turn from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what conversion is. But church, we cannot, we must not let that wash over us there is absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing. Just, just church from a sociological perspective, there's absolutely nothing that could have been more disruptive to this young church's life. I mean, Thessalonica, it was taken with the gods. I mean, the, the place was lousy with gods. And I mean all of them, the Greek ones, the Roman ones, they even went in for the old Egyptian ones as capricious and malevolent as they were. And do you know what it would be like? Do you know what it would be like for these young Christians to abandon that? What would happen if they abandoned that? It would evoke feelings of resentment and feelings of anger from their family and their friends. Oh, you're, you're too good for the gods now? What would it be like for this, these young Christians to, to begin to drop out of the, all of the elaborate social rituals, all of that whole way of being in the world that was dedicated to the service of the gods. I mean, they just start skipping holidays left and right. And in doing it, they suffered scorn and they suffered opposition, the kind of scorn and opposition that comes from wounding public sensibilities from wounding public proclivities. Nothing has really changed, has it? You get looked at funny. You get looked at funny. 
when you stop running after the things that everyone else has been running after for meaning and significance and power and control. I mean, you get looked at funny when, when those things just become less important and begin to just take their proper place in your life or when they're abandoned altogether. People look at you funny. They look at you because you've wounded a public sensibility, public proclivity. But if Paul's right, there is a deep power in it. People see it and they hear it and they wonder about it and then they think maybe there's something to this. And maybe they trace it back, these inexplicable, strange actions to the source. And they find life too in the living and true God who we know in the resurrected Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that you have done uh, for us, all that you have done for us in Jesus. We thank you preeminently for what you have done for us on the cross, that you have removed from us forever the the unbearable burden of self-justification. That you have lifted off of our shoulders the impossible weight of thinking that we belong to ourselves. So we ask, Father, that you would help us to hope in that so that we can labor, so that we can work in faith. We ask that you would do this uh, so that we'll grow up and mature as believers and so that through us, you can love the broken world around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.